Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. For this episode, we talked to Adam Fine, the CEO of Drug Channels Institute and a popular writer on the complex pharmaceutical system we have here in the U.S. We asked him about PBMs, how GoodRx and the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company work within the existing system, the 340B drug program, and where there's room for entrepreneurs to innovate, despite the consolidated and opaque industry. You'll also hear from Julie Yu, an investor and general partner at A16Z Violin Health. In some ways, this is a 100-level conversation. The pharmaceutical industry is so complicated that we could have easily spent a few hours talking about it. If you're interested in diving deeper or learning more about some of the entities we discussed today, check out the show notes for some additional reading from Adam. Let's get started. You obviously spend the entirety of your life focused on the pharmacy and drug value chain. Walk us through the drug channel and who are the key stakeholders and what does that end-to-end value chain look like from your perspective? I use the term drug channel to refer to all of the entities that sit between the manufacturer of a pharmaceutical and the patient, you and me. Um, There's a set of financial flows that go along with this market, and that distinguishes it from most other channels. In the United States, pretty much all pharmaceuticals, all prescriptions, not all, but most, are covered by a third-party payer, someone beyond you or me, the first party. And that's an entirely different separate system that exists. Uh, The payers are primarily our employers, uh, the government, health plans, which are aggregations of employers uh, or acting on behalf of the government. And those employers and health plans and other payers will hire intermediaries called pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs to help them administer this whole financial flow and do some other things. And there's two things that I want to highlight that distinguish the pharmaceutical part of the U.S. healthcare system from pretty much every other component of the healthcare system. Number one, the difference between that list price of a prescription pharmaceutical and the after discounts, after rebates, net price is monetized and therefore distributed within the system. That's not true of most medical expenses. So for example, here, Uh, The manufacturer will have a list price. There might be a lower price through a variety of things, the largest of which are various rebates that get paid back to the PBMs. Um, That difference is monetized. There's a literal, almost like a check is written. uh, If you went to the hospital, 
and you got a bill, you'd see the hospital list price, which they call a charge. Um, and then you'll see on your explanation of benefits, some insurance adjustment, and then the actual price that is paid, and then your share of that price. Okay. At no point is the difference between the hospital's list price and that net price monetized. It's just the net price. There's contracting at the net price. So because there's a difference, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of money sloshing around the system, and that creates some dysfunctional characteristics. Before we go any further, Adam, could you define for us monetization and tell us more about how PBMs make money? So if we talk about PBMs, you have to understand what PBMs do or the function of pharmacy benefit management, whoever's performing that function. They really do three things. Number one, pharmacy benefit management negotiates prices with the manufacturers of brand name drugs. Essentially, they go to the manufacturer of a brand name drug, which by definition is a patent protected government granted monopoly on a particular chemical or biological entity, molecule. And they say, you know what? There's five other products that do exactly what your product does. So therefore, we need some discount or we're not going to make your product available to our beneficiaries. So essentially saying you're more of a commodity than you think you are. Uh, they go to the pharmacies and have a similar kind of conversation. They negotiate with the pharmacies and say, hey, there's 60,000 places that our beneficiaries can fill prescriptions. If you'd like to be one of those 60,000, you better offer us a very competitive rate. And in many cases, they'll have even smaller sub-networks of pharmacies to drive lower prices. And third, they're trying to influence you and me, the behavior that we have so that we choose or our prescribers choose drugs that are the most effective and the lowest cost. And ultimately, the, these three functions are being performed for a third-party payer the government or an employer or a health plan who's trying to simultaneously improve the outcomes and the health of the beneficiaries and at the same time manage the costs of doing that. And the PBMs are the entities that are hired by the payers. They work for the payers. They don't work for pharmacies. They don't work for manufacturers. They don't work for patients. They work for the people paying the bills. Why is it the fact that PBMs are uniquely able to monetize that spread in the pharmacy industry versus what we see elsewhere in the in healthcare space? PBMs have emerged to take advantage of this uh, opportunity and manage these dollars. I don't know that, you know, where the history came from. I think, you know, some of it had to do with the fact that as recently as 40 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, the majority of uh, prescriptions were paid for by consumers out of their pocket. I mean, if you go back to the 1960s, uh, roughly 95 plus percent of all prescription costs were paid for out of pocket. There was no third party insurance. Um, Third-party insurance for prescriptions really accelerated in the 80s and 90s with the growth of primary care blockbusters, the expansion of the Medicare program into Medicare Part D, uh, the expansion of the Medicaid program. And so over time, the patient share of, of drug spending, particularly for outpatient drugs, has dropped from that 95% in the mid-60s to about 10% today. <laughs> so we've had essentially emergence of third-party payments and that created this rebate structure, which really emerged in the 90s or early 2000s. So it's maybe 25 years old. Got it. There's one other point I just want to mention that distinguishes the pharmaceutical channel from other channels. And that is that with very few exceptions, the cash price that, that a provider, in this case, let's say a pharmacy sets, is never lower than the price the insurance company will pay. 
So the cash price is often inflated far above what the insurance price is. Whereas in medical services, it's almost always the reverse. So if you went to a pharmacy and said, I'd like to just pay cash for this, they would they could quote you a very high price, even for things that are very inexpensive, like generic drugs, even for drugs that the insurance company may have negotiated 20, 50, 90% discounts for these generic drugs. But they'll lose money if they do that. They will have to charge that insurance company that usual and customary cash price. So they set the cash prices very high, kind of a soak the poor strategy. Whereas in the medical side, the cash price is almost always lower uh, at, as a way to cover people who are uninsured. So those two distortions create both business opportunities for things like PBMs, as well as for discount card operators like GoodRx. But they also create a lot of distortions in the system. Yeah. So we've created an incredibly complicated system that is probably not what anyone would design. And it's created a lot of uh, unfortunate opportunities for profit and warped incentives within the whole channel. What is the latest landscape of PBM? What is the distribution of uh, sort of market share in, in the market today? And, and how has that changed over time? And then specifically, you know, many of our listeners are obviously folks who are building startups in the space. But I'm curious what your view has been on kind of the long tail of opportunity in the PBM space. The PBM industry has consolidated significantly in the last 10 to 15 years uh, to the point now where there's really three large companies, uh, the Caremark division of CVS Health, the Express Scripts division within Cigna, and the OptumRx division of United Health. Those three companies handle or process about 80% of all equivalent prescriptions. And when I say an equivalent prescription, just so everyone understands, some prescriptions are 30 days, some prescriptions are 90 days. You normalize those to have 30-day equivalent because 90-day prescriptions have been growing. So if you think about this equivalent prescriptions, it's the natural number of prescriptions. So you've had these companies have consolidated. Uh, they have acquired companies. They brought companies together. In some cases, they've taken over the activity for other PBMs. And that's why it's often very hard to distinguish what's really going on here under the hood. Uh, so some of these PBMs will provide outsourced services to other PBMs. So for example, Express Scripts manages a subset of claims for Prime Therapeutics, which is also one of the largest PBMs owned by 19 Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. But Express Scripts, since it manages those prescriptions and processes those claims, counts those claims on its SEC filings as a claim that it files. CBS handles a lot of the prescription fulfillment or previously known as Anthem, now Elevance Health's PBM in RX. The CVS Health is behind the scenes. In addition to those three companies, there are dozens of smaller PBMs. Many of those PBMs, however, aren't really fully formed businesses. They often rely on the larger PBMs for pharmacy network management, claims management, and in particular, for negotiating rebates. The large PBMs have so much scale, they can negotiate much better deals with manufacturers than small companies. And so a lot of these small PBMs almost look like a small locally owned PBM servicing, let's say, smaller customers, but really they're relying on the functions and engines of the larger PBMs. Mm -hmm. There's a handful of small PBMs who have actually built their own claims management engine or other 
rebate engines, but often they'll rely for some major components of their business on one of these larger companies. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, you know, we typically think about PBMs as sort of aggregators, full stack aggregators. But in essence, they're actually platform companies. Like the way you're describing them is that they're components of their platforms that they monetize as sort of horizontal plays in addition to, you know, themselves being a full stack PBM. Right. And there's there's a couple other elements to that too. One, uh, over the last really five years, these PBMs have become part of large vertically integrated organizations. So for example, CVS, which started as a retail pharmacy, uh, acquired Caremark, a PBM, and then eventually combined with Aetna to form an insurer, PBM, retail, and specialty pharmacy. And of course, we're also moving into provider services. Cigna, you know, Express Scripts was a PBM, had started its own specialty pharmacies, had acquired some of those companies, acquired other PBMs, most famously Medco in 2012, and ultimately became part of Cigna. Some companies like United Healthcare have an in-house PBM, OptumRx, an in-house specialty pharmacy. Um, so, you know, these businesses no longer exist as sort of standalone businesses. They're part of these vertically oriented organizations. You know, we oftentimes talk about sort of the rebundling and then the unbundling motion, which is a pendulum that oftentimes swings back and forth in different industries. Do you expect that there will be an unbundling of PBMs in the future, given that this was a, a relatively recent phenomenon? Or do you think that the actual stable structure of the industry is to have these sit within large payers? I think for some of them, they have found that there are there are both synergies and there are opportunities for being inside of a large corporation. But other companies have found that those synergies are elusive and they're actually unbundling themselves. So let me give you an example of the first. So the first is, you know, PBMs are intermediaries, uh, which means they rely on differences between buying and selling spreads in various ways. Ten years ago, one of the ways that PBMs made a lot of their money or generated the profit to run their business was by negotiating the rebates with manufacturers, retaining those rebates, uh, and that was how they were compensated. Uh, of course, the plan sponsors, the health plans, and others said, well, wait a minute, those rebates are our rebates, so you need to give them to us. And over time, the PBMs have been forced to pass through most of those rebates. So that no longer really is a source of profit for them or spreads, and they've had to find other ways to make money. The more that they become part of these large vertically integrated organizations, the easier it is to, in some sense, hide from the plan sponsor where the profit is coming from. And so as the plan sponsors continually get more and more educated about how the PBMs make money and demand more of those economics for themselves, the PBMs always have to stay a couple of steps ahead in figuring out what's the next uh, source of profit. And so if they squeeze the balloon in one place, where is that air going to go to and how do we get part of it? Uh -huh. So that's been, uh, you know, an aspect of these PBMs. For example, each of the main three PBMs, Express Scripts first, but the others have followed, have set up purchasing organizations. So, for example, Express Scripts set up an organization in Switzerland called Ascent Health Services, which it uses to negotiate rebates with manufacturers. Prime Therapeutics sources rebates through Ascent. Humana's commercial business sources rebates through Ascent. Uh, and that's a little bit of an odd situation. Um, and then within Prime Therapeutics, other companies source rebates through Prime Therapeutics, which are then sourcing them through Ascent. 
So for example, Rite Aid announced that it would be sourcing rebates through Prime Therapeutics through its PBM instead of directly, but Prime is sourcing its rebates through Ascent based in Switzerland. So it's this opacity uh, creates opportunities for spreads. At the same time, there have been some of these companies who found they can't really make it work. Prime Therapeutics, which is a PBM, as I mentioned, owned by Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, had actually vertically integrated into owning a male and specialty pharmacy with Walgreens, but that didn't work out so well. It sold its interest in that. Um, it's turned its network, retail pharmacy network contracting over to Express Scripts. It sources its rebates through it. At Express Scripts. So it has not actually gotten into the vertical integration game. And Centene, which has had a number of challenges, had acquired a large number of specialty pharmacies and had set up its own PBM operation. It's meanwhile now in the process of selling off. It sold off some of the pharmacies it bought. It sold off one of the PBMs it bought. And it's going to be outsourcing its PBM. It is essentially de-vertically integrating. And it sold off some of its... Um, medical care uh, operations or medical services as well. It's mm -hmm. off uh, its U.S. medical management, for example. Yeah. So, you know, not all these companies have figured out how to make this work. And even the large companies are still, you know, they're very large, but they haven't always figured out what exactly is the benefit. Um, for, PB, for CVS and Express Scripts, a minority of their revenues come from their parent companies, Aetna and Cigna, respectively. Um, so they haven't necessarily figured out that this is some great uh, money-spending opportunity, but they do see the potential for it. I think one of the very few success stories in this market has been GoodRx, which you've covered quite a bit in your writings. You know, certainly on the surface, it's been a phenomenal business success story. Modulo, all of the turbulence in the market these days, I think they're getting hit just just like anyone else. But, you know, objectively speaking, they they were a tremendous success. But, you know, really when you sort of unpack what it is that they do. They're another example of a company that sort of sits on the chassis of the PBM and effectively becomes almost a marketing engine for many of those programs. Can you just walk us through, like, how do these discount card programs work? Is there anything unique about what GoodRx has done that you think it makes them more or less sustainable in the market? And, you know, what is your outlook on more of these consumer-facing pharmacy services businesses getting to the same level of success, given all the complexity that you just mentioned on the back end? A GoodRx exists for a terrible reason. They shouldn't exist. I think even Doug Hirsch, the CEO yeah. of GoodRx, has said that. Um, I characterize it as one of these companies that's good business if you can get away with it. Because um, GoodRx's entire business model relies on a flaw. So if a, a pharmacy, you know, let's take generic drugs where there's really a lot of mispricing and we can get use this maybe as a way to also talk about things like Mark Cuban's company. Most generic drugs are very, very cheap, and they're getting cheaper. They sell for a penny or less per pill. So the cost of the drug is not the cost of manufacturing. The cost of getting it, of the drug, is getting it from a factory in India to a store that's half a mile from your house in an orange cup with your name printed on it. That's, the, that's where all the cost goes in. And most of these products have list prices that are totally disconnected from the cost of production or the cost of distribution. So that drug that might have 30 cents of pill might have a list price of $100. So if you went into this pharmacy and said, I'll just pay cash for this, they'll say it's $100 or it's $200 or it's some insane number because the pharmacy sets what they call their usual and customary U and C cash price 
to be higher than the price they expect to get from any other third-party payer. Because if it isn't, that, that becomes the price the third-party payer pays them. So you may remember way back when, in 2006, Walmart started selling $4 generics. That was, as far as I know, the first time that a pharmacy had advertised the price of a prescription to consumers. And when they did that, there were payers who had been paying Walmart 15 or 20 or $25 for those prescriptions. And all of a sudden, Walmart said, well, this is now a $4 prescription, and the payers only then paid them $4. So therefore, pharmacies, to avoid this, will set the price uh, and say, oh, it's $100. So maybe one payer will pay me 15 one will pay me 20 one plan within one payer will pay me 25 Whatever it is, I'm not going to leave money on the table. So I can't, as a pharmacy, charge you a true cash price. And that creates a disconnect. Obviously, if you're uninsured, this is horrible. If you have a large deductible, roughly a third of all people with employer-sponsored insurance have deductibles, often numbering in the thousands of dollars. Those deductibles are often computed when you're paying in the deductible it can often be tied to that list price. Maybe it's the, it could be sometimes the plan's price. But whatever it is, you don't necessarily get any benefit as you work down that deductible. And so what GoodRx essentially is doing is getting, is, is, a, is a model that discount cards have used for decades. Um, but what they did is they did it at scale and they did it with multiple PBMs. And they essentially said, well, if you're a pharmacy in a network, you have to accept the PBM's rate. So even though you, this drug has a list price of $100, you as the pharmacy are only going to get $20 for it because it costs you something to buy the drug and there's something for your services. So what a discount card does is have you go in there and essentially get a PBM's network rate. So even if you don't have insurance, that's why on the back of a discount card, It'll have something you'll see on your regular insurance card, a BIN number, B-I-N. So you'll go in and you'll get that insurance rate. And once you get that insurance rate, the pharmacy is then required to fulfill that PBM's rate and then gives a fee back to the PBM who has that card, and the PBM gives a share of that fee back to the discount card vendor. So at the end of the day, what happens is what GoToRx reports is about 15% of the actual price that consumers pay for their prescriptions goes to GoToRx. So if you have a, a $30 script or a, something like that, you might be paying out of pocket $30. The cash price may be $100, so you think, I just saved $70, and everyone can tout, look how much we saved. We saved you 70%. Pharmacy may have to pay back to the PBM some amount that could be we don't know how much, $6, $8, we don't know. And then that <laughs> PBM then gives a piece to GoodRx. Yeah. And that becomes their their profit. And what GoodRx has done is has a very easy to use interface, has aggregated multiple PBMs on its platform so it can trade around the rates. And there's no payer on the other side of this transaction. So whatever money is coming out goes right into the PBM's pocket. Right. Of course, they have to share a what might seem like a lot with GoodRx. So they're sort of taking advantage of that distortion in the way contracts are written between pharmacies and PBMs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically the innovation that you're saying that they were able to execute was partnering with multiple PBMs versus just one, and then also just innovating on the consumer experience itself and you know offering a compelling front door for consumers who want to shop for their drugs. 
you've mentioned Mark Cuban's play. How how are they different? Like, what is their approach, and what sort of market distortions do you do you think they're sort of exploiting? in, in the same vein of what GoodRx is doing. Well, so so GoodRx is essentially exploiting a discrepancy in the way prescriptions are priced to the consumer, and what Mark Cuban's model is essentially saying, you know what? What if you didn't have insurance? You didn't have to go through this fancy of saying there's this list price and there's this real price and there's some spreads. And once you monetize that different, you create that spread. His model, um, which again has been around, but he's doing it with um, a lot of notoriety, is to essentially say, let's just pay cash. These are inexpensive drugs. We're going to pick relatively inexpensive drugs and we're just going to sell them essentially at as he calls it, cost plus. Uh, and by doing that, there's no PBM. There's no list price, net price. It's just this is the price. Um, in fact, most generic drugs probably shouldn't even be covered by insurance. They should just be a cash pay market. I mean, and remember, roughly 90% of all prescriptions are generic drugs at this point, And they're low priced and generally have been deflating over time. So you know, it's not particularly good business for pharmacy. It's one of the reasons retail pharmacy is having so many problems. And Mark Cuban is essentially saying, well, just, just pad your pocket. Why do you even need insurance for this? So on one hand, that's great. You're, you have this whole distortion you're eliminating. You are giving people a choice now. They can say, well, I could use my insurance for which I and my employer may be paying premiums of twenty to $30,000 a year for what, I don't know, but I'm getting something there. Uh, I could just pay out of my pocket through GoodRx, which is patient paid, but is still a PBM rate, or I could just pay cash to, you know, Mark Cuban is a, a scaled company. There's a number of independent pharmacies that have cash pay businesses now um, out there in the marketplace as well. So I could just do that. So for a lot of these drugs that are not expensive brand name drugs, you could just have essentially a cash pay market. So a lot of the the themes here are discounts on on drug pricing. Another uh, program in that vein is uh, what's called 340B, which is a bit esoteric, but you know this is a, a drug rebate program that's actually implemented on a B two B basis with facilities and and clinics who deliver care to Medicaid populations. And there's been a certain degree of, of controversy around these programs as well, Adam, and you've written a ton about them. You actually filed a FOIA request, which uh, yeah. I would love to hear you know, sort of what you learned from all of that, that pile of data that you got back from HRSA. But give us your your take on, on the state of 340B and what do you think is the outlook on, on regulation around this particular area, just given that it, it's a fast growing area that uh, I think is getting a lot more attention, just given potentially some of the misaligned incentives that hospitals have in particular uh, with regards to how they're leveraging those rebates. I did learn a lot about FOIA requests. Amazing <laughs> what you learn once you actually get into a world. Um, I'll, I'll try not to get too far in the weeds here, but some of the things we're talking about when we talk about, let's say, GoodRx or Mark Cuban, those are primarily stories about the dysfunction of generic drugs, where they're cheap products, they should be sold inexpensively. Um, when you get to brand name drugs, things are much more complicated, and many of us do need insurance. Arguably, that's what insurance is for. 340B is a program that was set up at the same time the Medicaid drug rebate program was set up in 1992. And the objective at the time was to allow certain entities who were getting rebates and discounts from the manufacturers to still get discounts because Medicaid has a best price provision, and so offering these 
discounts to safety net providers would have put the manufacturers on the hook for substantial liabilities, and they probably wouldn't have done it. That was the original motivation. It has now exploded far beyond what anyone thought it would be. Uh, roughly half of all the hospitals in the United States participate in this 340B program. And through a, a quirk that uh, the government kind of invented, this thing called a contract pharmacy, uh, and more than half of all pharmacies now participate in that. It's become a big source of profits for PBMs and chain pharmacies as well. You know, a, a rebate is something that's paid after the fact. So, for example, within the PBM world, when there's a set of prescriptions filled, at the end of the quarter, the PBM goes back to the manufacturer and says, well, I filled all these prescriptions for you. Okay, this is what you owe us. Uh, 340B is an upfront discount. It's not a rebate. And it's provided at an entity basis, not on a prescription basis. So an entity that qualifies gets it. And there's two kinds of groups that qualify. Groups that are called federal grantees, which are the entities that are generally the good guys of 340B. Community health centers, Ryan White AIDS clinics, Black Lung Cancer Clinics, Native American tribal healthcare sites. And they account for 10 to 15% of 340B spending. Then there's six hospital types that are eligible for 340B. And their eligibility is either by the type of hospital they are, like a children's hospital, or by something called their uh, dish percentage, which reflects inpatient days that are paid by Medicare or Medicaid. Obviously, with the Medicaid expansion and the aging of the population, um, more and more hospitals have can qualify for this. And once you qualify, you can get discounts of up to 100% on prescription drugs. And those drugs can be given to what are called eligible patients, which is a not a very specific definition. And essentially, the hospital will bill Medicare or a commercial payer the full normal price for the prescription, but buy it at this discounted price and keep the difference with the presumption that they're going to take that money and use it for good things. Unfortunately, uh, what we found, and both the Government Accounting Office and the Office of Inspector General has found that this money often doesn't find its way to the right places. Um, in fact, there was a great story in the New York Times about Bon Secours Mercy Hospital and how they had used this program as essentially a way to build nicer facilities in richer communities and not actually reinvested any of the money. In many cases, hospitals can be buying drugs for pennies that are brand name drugs that are not available for pennies, but still selling to people at list price. So a senior on a fixed income is paying out of pocket a deductible or a co-insurance for a drug the hospital bought for pennies. So, you know, there's a lot of problems like that. Many of these hospitals are nonprofit hospitals that have statutory obligations to provide community benefits and take care of Medicaid patients. And so the challenge is, what do you do about this? And the, the problem I'll mention, which goes back to what we started with, is that the 340B money has become infested into the entire system. The largest contract pharmacies three-quarters of all contract pharmacy relationships between pharmacies and covered entities, three-quarters of them are with five companies. The companies we just mentioned, CBS Health, Cigna and Express Scripts, OptumRx, and some of the large retail pharmacies. So the large PBMs 
have found 340B as a source of profitability. The plan sponsors, the payers, are getting benefits from 340B by being able to somehow get discounts from their PBMs for certain pharmacy network rates. So everybody is making money from 340B. It's not clear that it's always benefiting the patient. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And the majority of the program has no regulatory infrastructure. It's almost all been done with what's known as sub-regulatory guidance. And the operations of the program have been outsourced to a company called Apexis, which is a subsidiary of Vizient, which is a group purchasing organization owned by hospitals. So essentially a hospital-based entity, a private entity owned by hospitals is running a program that primarily benefits hospitals. So there's a lot of problems there. Yeah, tons of complexity, regulation where it maybe is onerous and then lack of regulation where perhaps it, we could benefit from it. And then, you know, a ton of consolidation of scale amongst a very small number of players in, in this general value chain. Where is there opportunity for innovation? If, if you're talking to a group of startup founders who see opportunities, whether on the consumer side of the equation, you know, on the pharmacist side of the, of the equation, where do you think the most viable opportunities exist for innovation in this space? I'll just say one quick thing about PBMs, which is, remember, I said at the beginning, the PBMs are hired by the plan sponsors. Uh -huh. If the plan sponsors didn't like PBMs or wanted to do something different, they could, but they don't. Uh -huh. So one of the things that makes it very hard for any entrepreneur to go after the PBMs is that you're not working for the manufacturers, the pharmacies, or even the patients. You have to work for the plan sponsors and create a different option for them. So there are a few PBMs out there who are doing that. And they're doing it by going to the plan sponsors and saying, there is another way, and we're not going to make you financially worse off if you try it. But that it is a hard sell because there is a lot of inertia and there's a lot of fear of doing something wrong. Um, and that makes it very hard. Um, in terms of opportunity, I think there's a number of areas. Uh, within pharmacy, you know, we could do a whole podcast on what's happened to the U.S. pharmacy industry and where it's going. But there's we probably have Fifteen to 20,000 too many pharmacies in the United States. This is why I don't get invited to speak at pharmacist conferences. They hate <laughs> when I say this. In a world when, you know, the majority of products were expensive brand name products, you could run a retail pharmacy and have more than enough money to pay your pharmacist well and have stores in the greatest corner of Elm and Maine in every town in the country. But when you're selling <clears throat> very inexpensive prescriptions, that are depreciating in price, it's very challenging to sell enough $25 prescriptions to pay an average pharmacist salary of $140,000. And, you know, when you're getting at the same time eaten alive in the front end by Amazon and Walmart and Target. So I think a lot of interesting pharmacy models are based on figuring more efficient ways to rethink the prescription dispensing experience. I think there's still enormous opportunities in the patient aspect of this. I mean, our healthcare system is so opaque. It takes me 400 pages every year just to describe what is happening in the just the pharmacy PBM channel component of this market. Uh, and it just gets more complicated. And most people don't even understand their benefits. So that enabling the patient, I think there's enormous opportunities there. I also think that a lot of healthcare providers and prescribers are very puzzled by the options they have. Benefits have become very complicated. Many of them have tiers and formularies and 
very complex designs. So tools that can enable physicians to make better uh, prescribing decisions, more efficient prescribing decisions, ones that are consistent with lowest net cost and best care. Physician enablement, I think, is a another huge area of opportunity that I think is a lot of people are tackling, but is is not an easy problem to solve. But I don't even know if we could ever get to simple, but there's certainly a lot of opportunities to try to help improve the patient's outcomes, even in this very complex, opaque system. Absolutely. We're going to have to have you back for a 200-level class. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegza. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. <laughs>